John chapter 7, Lord, open our eyes today afresh so that we would please see wondrous things of you from your word. We need you, we love you, in your name, amen. Uh, John chapter 7, we're going to be finishing up this chapter, so look down there to verse 37. It says this, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay. So we find ourselves here in chapter 7. If you remember, chapter 7 is all taking place during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Sukkot in Hebrew. Uh, We really, really need to get some background this week in order to see all of what's happening. We've mentioned the Feast of Booths, but we're going to dig down into it a little bit more for some reasons. So this is not one of the passages I had you turn to, so uh, don't worry about it. Just listen. This feast was instituted and, and laid out for the people of Israel and how they're supposed to observe it in Leviticus chapter 23. And here's what it says. On the 15th day of the seventh month, When you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it at a a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. And all native Israelites shall dwell in booths so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, in tents, in tabernacles when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay. So, so what is this? This is a seven-day feast, uh, a celebration, and it actually, it actually starts and ends with Sabbath, okay? So it's really eight days in total. And the cool thing about it is, is it's the only feast where the Lord commands his people to rejoice. And so this is meant to be a celebration, almost a festival of sorts, And it remembers the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings from the time when God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt and their slavery in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings that led to them getting to the promised land. And it celebrated God's God's presence with them, his provision, and his deliverance in the wilderness when they lived in these temporary tents for 40 for 40 years. Uh, And that's why often uh, during this feast is what Israel would do as commanded in Leviticus 23 is they would build these these grassy, leafy booths and then they would spend the week dwelling in those shelters. And, And a cool fact, many people think that it was actually during this feast or, or even on the first day of this feast 
when Jesus was born. And we celebrate in December now, but th this was end of September into October. And they think that this was probably the time when he was born, which, which is really cool when you think about John. John chapter one, what's he say? The word, Jesus, became flesh and did what? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Uh, one of the specific provisions that this feast celebrated was, was in Exodus chapter 17. So go ahead and turn, turn there. And it's when the Lord provides water from the rock in the wilderness. We're gonna look at the first seven verses. It says this, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim for there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord and said, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so here we are. They've come out of Egypt in the Exodus, out of slavery. They're in the midst of this wilderness, and they find themselves without water. They have nothing to drink. This is a desert-like thirst that they have. Hey, I, I'm convinced that most of us in our context have no idea what it means to thirst in this way. Uh, some of us probably do because of having lived in a different context at some point, maybe because you've spent some time in a desert, but here, Right here on the west side of Indianapolis, we know very little about what it means to be thirsty like this. Why? Because we can walk out here to just about any faucet, turn it on, and have water that's cleaner than what most of the rest of the world enjoys. Right? That's, that's why. So we just, we just don't get this. And in fact, we don't get this so much that we don't really worry about whether or not we will have water. Instead, we begin worrying about the quality of our water. No, I mean, you even go, you go to restaurants now, and I think it's a competition to see how nice of a container they can give you your water in so that you think it tastes better. If you go in there and it's a really fancy pitcher or it's this glass bottle thing that says Chip and Jojo on the bottom of it, <laughs> and, and, and you, they fill it up with water and you pour it. Amy and I, one time we were in a restaurant, we were like, this water is amazing. What, what water do you use? And he's like, it's out of the sink in the back. 
He's like, we just put it in a nice container so you think it's better than what it is. He's like, shh, don't tell anybody. We're like, okay, that's great. And, and I remember I used to be naive enough to think that, you know, water is water. Right? I, I drank out of the tap. You drink out of the, you drink out of the refrigerator. If I needed bottled water, I would get those bottles of water that are just called drinking water. And you get 80 of them for a dollar. And if you read the back of those, it says purified water, locally sourced which means the pond behind the store is what that means. But I just, it's like water's water. It quenches thirst. It's no big deal. And then, and then, one day I was traveling. I'm in the airport, and I wanted, I wanted a bottle of water. So I walked over, and I picked up this water called Fiji water. <laughs> Some of you have drank Fiji water. And I picked it up, and I read the back of it, and it says, an artisan water. I don't know what that is. It sounds delicious an artisan water that, that is from an ancient underground aquifer in Fiji. And it's so pure and so clear that the minerals in it are just the right minerals as it filters through the rocks so that it tastes smooth across your taste buds. And then it ends by saying, it's untouched until you unscrew this cap. Ha! They got me. I'm like, I got to taste this stuff because I'm curious, but water's water. And I drank it and I realized water is not water. Fiji water is heavenly water. <laughs> and I like, from now on, I'm drinking this water. And then I found out that I could have a hundred of these bottles for one of these bottles. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll just have one of those when I go to the airport and travel. And I get it. But, but that, I, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So, so they're, in, they're in the wilderness they're in the wilderness, okay? Think about this, think about this. They're in the wilderness. A million people, livestock. I mean, this is a whole people group moving. No water. Try to put yourself in that context for a minute. Like, water for them in this moment equals life. No water means death. If we don't drink, our livestock are going to die, we are going to die, our children are going to die, we will all perish. And in the midst of that, God shows up and provides them water. And even just think about the quantity of water that he would have needed to provide. Okay, that's, that's the background for this feast. That's, that's all the things that led up to the reasons why they're celebrating here, okay? But, but here's the thing. So that's, we've got to grasp some of the whys. I think we also need to grasp some of the hows today. How did this look? What did this feel like? What all was happening? All right? And in order for us to really see the impact that it's going to have when Jesus says what he says in the way that he says it, I think we've got to understand this, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to come down here, and this is freaking out some of you right now because you're like, listen, this is our space. <laughs> you're, supposed to be, you're supposed to stay up there, but hang with me for a minute. Hang with me. Excuse me. I'm going to come right sneak past you guys. Excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Here we come there. Hey, what's up, dude? <laughs> All right. I think I'm clear too, so I won't spit on the row in front of me, so that's be good. 
All right, here's what I'd love us to do. I'd love for us for a few minutes to use our imaginations. And I know half of you just were like, yes. And the other half of you are like, imagination, what is this word that you're using? Uh, all right, just, just hang with me here because I think, I think this is really important in order for us to see truly what's happening in this passage, okay? And I hope, I hope because we do this, we'll walk away worshiping different this morning, all right? So, so imagine, just for a second, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, thousands of people have made this pilgrimage, right? There's a buzz in the air. People are buying things. People are constructing booths, grassy booths that they're going to live in. People are preparing the feast already. Families and friends are reuniting that maybe didn't see each other since the last feast. And there's just this hum about the city, okay? And then every morning, there was this ritual that happened, all right? And we've got some, we've got some pictures up there and some scripture we're going to be using, but... Um, there's this ritual that happened. Here's what it looked like. The priests would, they would leave the temple. They would walk down to the pool of Siloam. The high priest would take a golden pitcher in his hand and he'd dip it into that water and fill that pitcher up with that water. Then he would lead a procession back up through the water gate and trumpets would sound. And the people around would chant Isaiah 12, 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the priest would lead that procession one time around the altar there in the temple, and then he would take the water in that pitcher, and he would pour it out at the base of the altar with the morning sacrifice. That's so cool. And that would happen every single day until the great day, the last day of the celebration, which is where we're at. And it would start similarly, okay? It would, the priests would leave. They'd walk out of the temple. They'd walk down to the pool of Siloam. The high priest would take that pitcher. He'd dip it into those waters and scoop it up, and then he would lead this procession back up. They'd go through the water gate. The trumpets would sound. The people would, would chant Isaiah 12.3, but this time, this time, instead of walking around the altar one time, he would lead the procession around the altar seven times. Why seven times? Because the children of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho seven times, and God brought those walls down and led them into the promised land seven times around. While they're marching around in this procession around the altar, the people are waving these branches that they have in their hands, and the temple choir is singing the Psalms of Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. And just as this is closing out and coming to an end, the people together would say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And the priest would raise his arm up high and he'd pour that water out with the morning sacrifice. Are you seeing it? Like if you're really good with an imagination at this point, you're like, oh man, I can kind of feel the dust under my feet. I feel the crowd pressing in. I hear God's people reciting his scripture and singing his praises. I can, 
I can hear the water hitting the sides of the altar. I can smell the fragrance of that morning sacrifice. And it's incredible. And all of this, all of this for this reason, to celebrate God, to celebrate that God provided He provided in the wilderness. He was present with us. He gave us manna from heaven. He gave us water from the rock. But not only then, God has provided now. He provided the harvest this year. He will provide the rains for the crops in the coming year. And he will provide. He will provide his promised Messiah who will come and deliver his people and once and for all, pour out his spirit on them. Wow. That's the moment we find ourselves. And right then, boldly, scandalously, graciously, and intentionally, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see the impact that that moment would have had with all of what was being celebrated around it? Essentially is what Jesus does as he stands up and goes, excuse me, have your attention for a minute. I am the fulfillment of your feast. Everything we've been celebrating for seven days, it's all about me. It all points to me. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says, the rock was Christ. The rock, the Messiah was and is and always will be the provision of his people. And by Jesus standing up in that moment when he did, right then is what he is saying is, I am the rock. I identify myself with the rock who is the source of the eternal life-giving waters of God's spirit. Like, incredible. And what's really cool, what's really cool is by doing that in that way, by making the connections that Jesus did, what he, what he did was actually indicate the way in which he would provide deliverance. You, are you still in Exodus 17, maybe? If you are, take a look at that. What's the Lord say? The Lord says, I will go before you and I will stand on the rock. And here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to take that staff in your hand, the staff that God used to bring judgment against Egypt and to deliver his people from slavery, the staff that God used to part the waters and lead you through them to salvation. You're gonna take that staff and you're gonna strike that rock and water will flow in the desert. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the rock and I will be struck so that you will have life. 
And that symbolism, that's why, okay, if you look, if you look, you've got Exodus chapter 17, water from a rock. It happens again. Later on in the wilderness wanderings, Numbers chapter 20, God again is gonna provide water from a rock. But this time he tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. Speak to the rock. But Moses is so angry with the people. He takes that staff again and he strikes that rock in order to get water. And the Lord comes down hard on Moses in discipline. Why? Because he just desecrated that beautiful picture, which is what? God ordains when the rock will be struck. And that rock will be struck one time and one time only for all time for the salvation of mankind. What a picture. And here is Jesus. He stood in our place. He was struck on our behalf, crucified. Took the punishment we deserve so that if we will believe in him, we will have eternal life through his spirit. <laughs> you see, like seeing all that, it changes everything. Right, I need to go back up here, excuse me. Like sometimes I think it's easy, like we're re- oh wow, now I messed my microphone all up. The wind rushing past. It, like, it, you see, like in our Bible reading, sometimes it, w- it would be easy just to, just to look at this and go, Okay, there was a great feast. There was a celebration. Yep, Jesus stands up and says, anyone thirsty? Boy, if we will stop and slow down and picture the context in which these are taking place and investigate a little further, oh, the beauty of what's happening here, right? Okay, let's keep going. Look at verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit, right? Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What's this talking about? The spirit had always been at work. The spirit was at work right now saving people. Um, This is talking about the new covenant promise of the indwelling spirit of God that would be poured out on believers. And this happened at Pentecost once Jesus ascended to heaven, okay? All right, now verses 40 through the end of the chapter, um, we're gonna see some responses to Jesus in this. Uh, So far in John, there's been a lot of confusion over what Jesus is saying. It's like, why is he talking about something physical? Is he talking about something spiritual? What's he doing here? If you'll notice as we go through this, there is no confusion here whatsoever. Everybody present knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. And so the focus is more on the responses to him. And the people are are divided about who he is and how to respond to him. Some of them are believing, I think we see in this passage. Some of them are still in unbelief. Some of them are skeptical and questioning, but not quite there. And there's these two groups of people, the, the common people, the everyday people, and then these religious leaders, all right? Let's look at this, verse 40. And when they heard these words... Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Uh, It's talking about Deuteronomy 18, the promised prophet, one that would come who is like Moses, but greater than Moses. Verse 41, and others said, this is the Christ. 
Like there's some believing people in the midst here. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yes, the scriptures do say that. Psalm 89, Micah 5.2 are just a couple of those. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him. But just like we saw last week, no one laid hands on him. Verse 45. Then the officers, I think Pastor Larry called this the brute squad, they came to the, to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to him, why didn't you bring him? You were supposed to arrest him. Verse 46, and the officers answered and said, no one ever spoke like this man. Like They spent the last several days supposed to be looking for an opportunity to arrest him and instead they're captivated by him and his teaching. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them and said, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees actually believed in him? But this crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Like, do you, are you feeling their, their pride here in this? Uh, let me put it in words that we would probably use. These uneducated losers in this crowd follow Jesus foolishly, and they don't know nothing. And they're cursed. Only we have the education necessary to understand things. Only we grew up in Sunday school class. Only we have really, 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 really big Bibles with lots and lots of words in them. Only we have the knowledge of the law necessary to follow God and obey him. And you see the irony of that? All their knowledge hasn't done them any good because they don't believe. Verse 50, then Nicodemus, ah, there's Nicodemus, he comes back up. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the rulers, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he, what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee, which by the way, prophets did arise from Galilee. Jonah was probably from Galilee. Nahum, at least, was from Galilee, and there's a couple others. So what's happening, I think is what's happening is their anger and their pride is blinding them so much that they're not even seeing the facts that are right there in front of them. And then you got Nicodemus, which is so cool. They're like, none of us have believed. And then Nicodemus pops up and goes, well, actually... I'm kind of getting there. And he seems to be supporting Jesus, but, but still considering. Still not quite there, but getting closer. And they recognize that too, which is why they say what they say about him in the snarky way. But look at what Nicodemus says there in verse 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him what? A hearing and then learning what he does. He's like, listen, you can't just make a judgment. You need to listen to this guy. You need to weigh what he says. You need to learn before you're just saying, oh, he's not, he's not, he's not. Which if they would have done some digging and some asking, which they're not doing because I don't, I don't think they want answers at this point. 
I think they, they want to believe what they're believing. They want to do it that way. They don't want that to change. But if they just done a little bit of digging, they would have found out, yep, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And yep, he's from the line of David. But they don't. I was thinking about this this week. I was like, huh, how much, how much of our daily unbelief and struggles and doubts are due to either ignorance of God's promises or an unwillingness to trust them when we do know them, right? I mean, so God tells us where the answers are found. He says, the answers that you need are found in my word through the power of my spirit amongst God's people, not on YouTube, not on the evening news. In my word, by the power of my spirit amongst God's people. And so often knowing that that's where God's promises are, that that's where he will lead us and guide us and speak to us. We willfully are ignorant and we just walk past it. And we don't stop to hear and to seek his answers. And I think it's sometimes because we don't want the answers. Why? Because the other side of that is simple intellectual assent to knowing the truth is not enough. Once we know the truth, we, we have to believe. We have to trust him. We have to obey him. And at this point, we see the religious leaders unwilling to seek the answers and then unwilling, even if they do see the answers, to believe them. And oh, that we would be a people that regularly and first and foremost goes to the source for the answers to our deepest questions. God, through his word, and oh, that we would be a people that when we see his promises that he's given to us, when we see the truth that he holds out to us, that we would be quick to believe and trust and obey. All right, so how do we, how do we end this? We end with this. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the feasts. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. It all points to him. It's all about him. There's the truth. The, the question here that the Gospel of John poses to us is this. It's how will you respond to him today? If you're here, and I know there are some here, and you're still in this category of, of unbelief, and questioning. First of all, I'm glad you're here. I hope you continue to be here. I hope you continue to, to seek the answers from the source. I have to tell you this morning, if you have not yet placed your trust in Christ, you are in a, a desert spiritually. You are in a, a wilderness spiritually. Dying of your spiritual thirst. And, and I have to tell you, this is a life and death situation. It is dire and it is desperate. And here's the thing. Whatever you're looking at in your life, whatever thing, whatever person, 
Whatever you're seeking apart from Jesus to to save you, to give you life or to satisfy you, it is insufficient. Uh, Think of it like this. You're in a desert and you need water or you die. And you look out on the horizon and what do you see? You see a massive body of water, an oasis ahead. So you run to that water, you begin to drink that water only to find out that that's the ocean. And it's filled with, it's salt water. And you drink it and all that it's doing is making you more thirsty and all that it's doing is hastening your death. And you're told that, which is what I'm telling you right now. Everything that you're seeking life from that's not Jesus, it only leads to death. You're told that and you're pointed to Jesus who's on the horizon saying, come to me. And instead is what we do apart from Christ is we just go back and we just keep drinking that ocean water. We just keep ingesting it, looking, looking for it to do what it can't do. Jesus stood in our place. He was struck on our behalf. And now by grace through faith in him, he will give you what you don't deserve, eternal life through his spirit. And today you can believe in him and you will never be spiritually thirsty again. If you're here and you're a believer, the God who saved you is the God who still satisfies you daily. So often as believers, we think, okay, place my trust in Jesus Christ, right? Place my trust in Jesus Christ. I've I've drank from his satisfying waters. I've put my trust in him. And then there's this constant daily temptation in us, right? Because of this sin in us still to still Go back to that ocean to still look for our daily satisfaction in something that we know is not ultimately satisfying. And here's the thing. Whatever wilderness you find yourself in the midst of right now in your life, there is still one answer and one answer only, and it's Christ. Go to him, not just in the past, today and believe in him. Psalm 63, one, David says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Would that be our daily life? Would we daily, moment by moment, go to the only one that we can truly and ultimately trust, go to the only one that will satisfy us with himself today. Believers, believers, I mean, from this passage, we live in the new covenant. You know what that means? We have the spirit of God. If you've placed your trust in him, we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. Look at this cool connection. So the word, Jesus, he became flesh. He became a little bitty baby human. To do what? to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. Why? So that he could deal decisively with sin and death through his life, his death, and his resurrection, right? And then when we place our trust in him, what's he do? He gives us his spirit to do what? To dwell, to tabernacle in us. 
Listen to me. You have the spirit of God. He is present with you always, no matter what you're in the midst of. He is loving you. He is comforting you. He's perfecting you day by day by day. He is empowering you to do exactly what he has called you to do. Everything in your life changes. Why? Because God is near because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. And we live, we live currently in this moment in a type of desert between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Why? We trust in him. He gives us eternal life. We have eternal life now. But daily, right? We still see and battle against the presence of sin in our own lives and in this world while we long for his coming. And the beauty of what Christ is saying here is I will satisfy you. Not in the past, not in the future, right now, if you will daily trust me and pursue me with everything that you've got. Ha, the rock of our salvation. Father, Lord, I'm just gonna ask for those that are in our midst who are in that questioning or unbelief place. Lord, would you please do a work right now in those hearts? Would you open their eyes to see you and your beauty? Would you help them realize that all that they are pursuing in this life, hoping that they will get life from it, hoping that it will be satisfying, hoping that it will give them purpose and meaning, hoping that it will save them in the end. Lord, it is insufficient. It is idolatry. And would you help them turn from all that is unsatisfying, repent of their sins, and drink deeply of your saving waters, Lord. Lord, would you help us, believers that are in the room, Lord, would you protect us from daily being tempted again to run after all the things that are not you? Would we remember, would would we remember your provision and your presence and your deliverance daily, moment by moment by moment? Lord, we ask now that you have quenched our eternal thirst, would you amongst us, this people in this place, Lord, would you, would you create in us daily thirst for you? Would we not be able to get up to go to work, to go to school, to go to whatever you've called us to or lay down our head again in the evening without this insatiable thirst to know you more and to be nearer to you in relationship. Lord, would you well that up inside of us and hold out yourself to us afresh each day what you have done for us and what you are for us now and even what you will be for us in the future, Lord, when you return. Hasten the day. We love you. We need you. The rock of our salvation.